0: that has not one, not two, not even three, but four cabinets of dumb mugs. Welcome to the Dumb Mug Club. Um I actually had this idea and I don't know if I'll do it or not, but I thought it'd be really fun for like every Monday for us all to show our dumb mugs <laughs> in Instagram on Instagram. I don't know if it'll happen, but stay tuned it might. Anyway, I'm your host Amanda and this is episode 162. This will be the fourth and final, at least for now, episode in a series about the ethics of secondhand. If you haven't listened to the other three episodes in this series, well, what are you doing? (laughs) Go listen to those first. In fact, go listen to them right now. Why are you listening to this? Anyway, pause this, go to the other ones. For the previous episodes, I was joined by Alex of St. Evans, but for this one, I'll be all alone. And yeah, it feels a little weird. <laughs> but as I was editing part three, I had this sort of like a light bulb moment. Now that we've debunked all of the myths that form the core, you know, just like that dirty, evil little core of all of the anti-reseller rhetoric I see across all social media platforms and in a lot of really brutal blog posts. Well, as we dissected all of that, we've uncovered a lot of larger systemic issues along the way that are the actual causes of the frustrating things being falsely blamed on resellers. So in my career as a buyer, I've also been a manager. You know, like a lot of jobs, the higher you move up the career ladder, the more people you manage. And to be honest, at a certain point, most of your job becomes strictly managing people, uh, doing a lot of strategizing, being the final boss to solve all of the biggest issues that arise. I guess that what I'm saying is that over the years, I've become, you know, like the Bowser of buying, but like a nice, empathetic Bowser. As I mentioned early in the life of Close Horse, like probably in one of the first few episodes, one of my past bosses told me that I needed to care less for the people who worked for me if I ever wanted to succeed in my career. I I obviously don't believe that. <laughs> and that could be a whole episode of its own. In fact, I've been trying to get Kim, who some of you know as my co-host on the department, to come over for a close horse episode about toxic work environments, particularly in fashion, but not just in fashion, and how Hopefully, the world of shitty jobs that give you stress, eczema, and like a permanent stomach ache are finally changing. So, I don't know if you know Kim, if you listen to the department, go tell her now that we should do this episode. Anyway, back to being a manager. Okay, so when I'm helping members of my team solve a problem or make a decision using data, I always follow a formula of what. And then now what? Because sometimes you get stuck on the what of it all, of the problem, or of just what the facts are telling you, and you never move past that. So if we identify that the problem is thrift store prices being too high, that would be the what, then now we have to figure out now what, meaning What could make this situation better? As I was working on the third installment of this series, I realized that we had uncovered a lot of what's, some bigger than others, and it felt irresponsible to skip the now what part of it all. And maybe that's just my inner manager speaking. I don't know. But I've also been getting a lot of questions on all of the Instagram posts that accompany this series that ask, what can we do? How can it be better? So I know a lot of us are thinking about this. So in this episode, we'll be taking the what's and exploring the now what's. Now, I don't have all the answers. I'm one person who spends a lot of time researching and thinking about these things. But at the end of the day, these are very complex issues that will require time, larger systemic changes, and massive social changes to accomplish, but that doesn't mean that they can't happen. There's a metaphor that I've heard used in situations involving complex, overwhelming projects. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Sorry, I feel gross saying that because I personally love elephants. Uh, The last time we were in Japan, I watched an hour-long program that was you know, maybe intended for children, but I knew enough Japanese to follow along. And it was about the various baby elephants in the Japanese zoo system. And honestly, it moved me to tears multiple times. It was amazing. Um, You haven't lived until you've seen like an elephant give birth and see her baby for the first time. So I'm getting teary eyed right now. Anyway, so we're not gonna talk about eating the elephant. Let's try a different metaphor. How do you eat that baseball bat-sized zucchini that somehow grew to that size in your own garden with minimal attention? If you know, you know. Well, you're not going to eat a whole baseball bat-sized zucchini in one meal. You'll eat it one bite at a time by making zucchini bread and zoodles and skewers and zucchini fries and so much more. And that's sort of how we make the secondhand clothing system more equitable and less wasteful by making a long list of changes. And while some of these changes seem scary and huge, and they are, others are a lot smaller and more personal. No matter the scale, they all add up to shifting the secondhand clothing system into a better place. And every participant in the system will have to make some changes thrift stores, resellers, consumers, the people who donate to thrift stores, the resale platforms, so essentially, all of us. Here are the individual elements of that massive zucchini that we will be discussing in this episode. First, what might help bring thrift store prices back to a more accessible level? Next, how could there be better, and that's in quotes because that's very subjective, How could there be better stuff in the thrift stores? Then, ways we can ensure that people who need things like clothes and home goods are getting them. Next, a path toward making resale more equitable for resellers. And lastly, this one's really important too, how can we de-escalate the ever-intensifying anti-reseller rhetoric that is happening on social media right now? Oh man, my friends, do I have stories for you just from the last few days alone? Stuff on social media gets real wild sometimes. Anyway, just a super simple list for us to tackle, right? (laughs) One last thing I wanted to mention before we get started. In the last episode, Alex used a term that is often used as a name for people who are price gouging, specifically buying up things and then charging astronomical prices for them on the resale market. It was used a single time in one sentence. A listener reached out a few days later to let us know that the word had racist origins, which was a learning opportunity for both of us. I learned this about four days after the episode was released, but fortunately I was able to pull it, cut out that sentence and re-render and upload it. All within about an hour. If you listened to the episode before I did that, you did hear that word, and I apologize from the bottom of my heart for any harm that may have been caused. I know Alex feels the same way. If you hear something that is concerning on the podcast, the best thing you can do is email me immediately. DMs are a lot slower, and certainly don't DM the guest because it just slows down the process of making things right. For me, doing the best job I can all the time is, I mean, it's its a really big deal to me. And, you know, I don't know everything out there either. So for with this, with this word, it was something new that I learned. And it certainly wasn't really a word I use very often anyway in conversation, but I definitely won't ever be using again. You know, it's progress, not perfection. And we're all learning alongside one another. Let's take a moment to mention a new sponsor of CloseHorse, Horse, North American Herb and Spice. A few weeks ago, I was sick from one of the wild viruses wreaking havoc on all of us this winter and early spring. You all know, because I told you on Instagram. And while illnesses like colds and flus tend to linger with me for a really long time, turning into a sinus infection, bronchitis, or some other secondary infection that slows me down for weeks and makes it hard to make Clothes Horse This time, I made a fast recovery, and I think North American Herb and Spices Oregano P73 Oil had a lot to do with that. I'm actually a regular user of herbal and natural remedies because I believe in the power of plants, and I've got a lot of rad smart herbalists in my life. I'm very lucky. I've actually been a big believer in oregano oil for upper respiratory infections and other minor illnesses since a friend introduced me to it about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Fun fact, it was actually a vendor that I worked with at my first buying job. I just add two drops to a little bit of water and chug it first thing in the morning. It's also great when mixed with a hot ginger and cayenne tea, so awesome for a sore throat. I've also used it to treat minor skin infections and bug bites, which I get a lot of, especially here in Texas. And North American Urban Spice has the highest quality oregano oil I have ever used. Oregano P73 is the original truly wild organic oregano oil that is produced by old-fashioned old-fashioned steam distillation. It is the only unprocessed, full-spectrum wild oregano oil available, and it is chemical and GMO-free. North American Urban Spice is a true American success story. Founded in a basement and told by skeptics that it could not be done, Judy K. Gray defied the odds and built a renowned and trusted brand. She believed that there had to be a better way to heal the world and that the answer lay in finding the finest ingredients especially from the wild, and formulating them into unique products. Judy was the first to recognize the unique healing powers of P73 oregano oil and create formulations that countless consumers have used over the last 30 years. If you're interested in trying Oregano P73 or any of North American Herb and Spice's other products, go check out Urbanspice.com. They offer a wide variety of high-quality products made from ingredients sustainably sourced from around the world. I'll definitely be adding their oregasin throat spray to my next order. And guess what? I have a special offer just for Clothes Horse listeners. Get 25% off your order with the promo code closehorse 25 That's CLOTHESHORSE25, and I'll share that in the show notes. Okay, well, let's get into it and let's get started by tackling the first what, which are thrift store prices. There's no doubt that thrift store prices have increased over time. For one, overall prices have increased, but secondly, thrift stores are tagging some items with prices that are closer to what I would consider the, I don't know, market value of them, and some thrift stores do this more than others and the practice is kinda inconsistent. I and mean, we talked on the last episode about glass jars being more expensive than buying them brand new. I've also seen secondhand Adidas and Nike sneakers at thrift stores priced in the like $70 to $100 range. And at the same time, I've seen actual vintage stuff priced below $10, even though the market value for those items would definitely be higher. And to be clear, when I talk about market value, I'm referring to the average price that a consumer would be willing to pay that would actually be paid for that item. That customer might not be you, but it is someone out there. Will that person willing to pay that price happen to walk into the thrift and buy it? That's a bigger risk. If that person doesn't show up, the thrift store will either have to mark it down to a lower price or end up bailing it up and shipping it off somewhere else. The labor of doing that, of bailing it up, shipping it off somewhere else, that costs the thrift store even more money. So yeah, it's not always the smartest thing for the thrift stores to be marking up those prices to that level. You know what? I think it's important for us to take a minute to talk about the psychology of pricing. If there's anything I know very, very well, it is the art Of choosing the right price for a product. Yes, there are spreadsheets and calculators involved for sure, but like any part of buying and retail, determining the right price is a mixture of science that's the spreadsheets, that's the calculator and art. And in this case, that art part of it is sort of a gut feeling that involves understanding how people behave and what their perception of pricing and value is. Now, I know the internet is full of tales of unscrupulous resellers price gouging by asking prices that no one can afford. And listen, that definitely does happen. As Alex and I discussed in the last episode, some people are assholes. And they are in every industry, every field, every scene, Instagram community, you name it. But most people are decent people. And if they're marking things at a super high, unrealistic, unfair price, it's probably because they don't know any better. I think sometimes one of the biggest mistakes we make as humans is assuming that everybody's coming at everything with some sort of unethical intent and really they're just making mistakes because that's what humans do. I think we all need to give each other a lot more grace than we have been for a very long time. And the way we regard the prices uh, listed by resellers is just one one thing on that long list of things that we might want to give some grace on, right? To remember the humanity of it all. So if someone accidentally prices things too high because they just They just made a mistake. I mean, even as a buyer, I make mistakes in pricing too. If they're smart or they have natural business acumen or or at least can recognize that something isn't selling because it's priced too high, they will lower the price or they'll never sell it. That's how all retail works, actually. Pricing is way more complicated than just my expenses worth this, now I'll just double or triple that to get to the asking price. In fact, we can agree that in the world of thrifting, where, you know, the inventory is free, obviously there are costs associated with processing it, et cetera, but for the most part, the cost to the thrift store is free, they can't just be like, I'll double that price of free, and then I have the price I'm going to list it at in the store, Right? Pricing is so much more than that. It's so complicated that I teach a whole session just about pricing for Small Biz Big Pick, which are the small business classes I teach with Courtney of Sonic Wave Vintage. And I'll just say that the most important part of pricing isn't how much the item costs you to source and clean and mend and list. It's how much a customer is willing to pay for it. That's called the perceived value. And sometimes the perceived value of an item, meaning what the customer is willing to pay for it, sometimes that will make it a more profitable thing to sell. Other times, the perceived value of something is lower than the cost of sourcing it. And in that case, a reseller or a maker or a retailer should stop trying to sell it and move on. Like sometimes what people are willing to pay for something doesn't even cover the cost of making it. And at that point, why would you be doing it? It clearly has far less value, far less perceived value than the actual like financial value of it, right? Perceived value is complicated for a lot of people at first at least because it's more squishy It's more complex because you're not pricing based on a formula. And even more frustratingly, it changes over time, trend, place, and customer. For example, Y2K. Clothing and brands and just the aesthetic of that first five to ten years of this century in all of its low-rise, juicy couture, Britney Spears glory um just going to add on a personal level that i pulled a bunch of pictures of clothing from that era for an episode of the department we worked on a few weeks ago and wow the style of that time is really haunting to me <laughs> uh, and not in a good way totally makes me think of how appalled my mom and her friends were when my friends and i were really into the 70s as teenagers because that was their y2k and I finally understand now why my mom was horrified to watch me walk down the stairs and leave the house in a lime green Mr. Furley leisure suit, but it was a hot look. But just a few years ago, Y2K aesthetic, anything associated with it, was the last thing that anyone wanted to buy. And anything from that era could only be sold at rock bottom prices, if at all. Now Y2K and all of its low-rise glory is a fashion trend and customers are willing to pay more. This is a great example of fashion trends dictating the perceived value of something. Another great example is gunny sacks dresses. I talk to my friends who are vintage sellers all the time and they will say either it's a gunny sacks time or it's not. And when it is, you can get top dollar. And when it's not, no one will even look at it. Right now, all the mall brands of the aughts like Abercrombie are also big from a trend perspective, and people are paying more money for that sweatshirt from the mall than they would have 10 years ago. Another thing that affects perceived value is scarcity, or at least perceived scarcity. There's a lot of perception involved in pricing, right? Right. People are currently selling discontinued balm.coms from Glossier. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They come in a tube. Personally, not so impressed by them, but there's a whole generation of people out there who are obsessed with balm.com. It's literally like a lip balm in a tube. It's not unlike, I don't know, Vaseline with a little bit of flavor and tint. Anyway, anyway. Glossier has recently been discontinuing a lot of flavors and they changed their formulation. Why do I know this? Because I follow way too many subreddits that I'm not even really that interested in just because I like being a creep and seeing what people talk about and think about. And honestly, it helps me in my day job. It helps me with Clothes Horse. It helps me with the department. And it's just really interesting because I'm obsessed with people. So People are selling these discontinued balm.coms on Mercari, on Poshmark, on eBay for five to 10 times the original price. Once again, we're talking about a tube of lip balm and people are paying those prices because they don't know if they'll ever get it again. This same phenomenon of scarcity, it plays a role in the prices people will pay for vintage rock tees, clothes that are older than say the 1980s, specific niche brands, um, luxury items, even vintage in larger sizes, which is you know more difficult to find. And yeah, some of these things can fetch some pretty steep prices. When I, for example, see people fighting on the internet about the pricing of garments from the 1940s, I'm like, wow, I mean, that's almost 100 years ago. There's very little of that left. It's almost at the point where it should be in a museum so it can be preserved. Of course, it's gonna be more expensive than something from the 80s or 90s because it's so old. For the customer, the perceived value is high, Because the odds of encountering another one of these things out in the wild or just in general is pretty low, even with discontinued lip balm. We also see scarcity playing a role in the price of agricultural products, right? Fruits, vegetables, animal products like eggs. Eggs have been really expensive lately because there has been a lower supply. There has been a perception of scarcity. Cotton, cotton prices go up all the time. And yes, it does affect the pricing of your clothing. Oil and gas, we've seen gas prices go back and forth and natural gas prices and the cost of heating our homes as a result. All kinds of things around us outside of clothing fluctuate in pricing based on scarcity. You know, if you take scarcity, think picture a Venn diagram here, right? You know what that is. It's like the overlapping circles, and one of those circles is scarcity, and the other one is trend, what's the overlap right there? Or at least an example of an overlap? Beanie Babies, okay? Beanie Babies, people, I mean, you know, we did a whole episode for Patreon about Beanie Babies. People were like (laughs) thinking they were gonna retire on the proceeds of collecting Beanie Babies. They thought they were gonna send their kids to college but at the end of the day two things wildly devalued beanie babies in a short period of time one was that there really wasn't scarcity they were making way more of any of these beanie babies even the allegedly super rare ones than any of the collectors knew and the other thing is they kind of fell out of trend like people just stopped caring while the company was still churning out you know millions of these beanie babies that no one wanted anymore, and that weren't as rare as they had seemed. And so that combination of trend and scarcity completely devalued Beanie Babies. And now you go to a flea market, any flea market I go to, half the booths have just plastic tubs full of Beanie Babies that are like $1 to $5. Another type of scarcity can be created by geographical availability. And this will drive up the perceived value. So for example, in the 90s, resellers were making a fortune exporting secondhand American jeans to Japan and Thailand. Here in the US, no one was interested in them because the whole country was just like flush with gap stores in every mall and denim everywhere returned. The perceived value here was pretty low. The best thing you could hope for is maybe you had got some like really cool vintage jeans that someone would pay a little bit more for, but like the actual contemporary secondhand denim, at that point, no one was interested in. You might be able to sell it for a couple bucks at the thrift store. That was it. But in Japan, resellers were able to charge top dollar for these jeans that weren't readily available there, even though we were drowning in them here. You know, the first time I went to Japan, and I guess it was like 2016, 2017, I sell tons and tons of hard rock cafe t-shirts and sweatshirts in every store and on the body of every cool kid in Harajuku. These sweatshirts were priced anywhere between $30 and $50, but back here in the U.S., where there were a ton of them, I would would go as far as saying the scientific term here, a shit ton of them, Uh, they were everywhere in every thrift store, and you would be hard-pressed in 2017, to find someone who would even take your Hard Rock Cafe sweatshirt from you for free, right? Just not a lot of value here and a ton of them in every thrift store I went to. It's just another example of perceived value being different for different people in different places. And here's the thing, even if a price seems wildly unrealistic to you, Sometimes it works in ways that surprise us. How many of you have watched Arrested Development? A show of hands, please. Okay, I loved it at the time, but I haven't rewatched it, so I don't know if it holds up. I might find it really offensive at this point. I'm just saying that with this disclaimer. But there is an iconic line that I think about all the time. And I reference all the time when I'm teaching people about pricing. It's when the wildly out-of-touch, mega-rich lady matriarch Louise Bluth scolds her son for charging his brother for a frozen banana on a stick. She says, I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? $10? Of course, the joke is that $10 for a banana is ridiculous And only a rich person who has no concept of money or groceries or the world, I suppose, would think the banana could cost $10, right? It's just a basic grocery store thing that we can get any time we want. But got to remember, we haven't always had bananas here in the United States or Canada or Europe because bananas aren't from here. And so in the last century, when bananas began to be exported to the global north, Uh, They were a luxury item, for one, right? Now you can get them in every store and, you know, they're like, I don't know, 29 cents to 40 cents a pound. Would someone pay $10 for a banana? It sounds wild. Most of us wouldn't, right? I'm the most thrifty person ever, so I wouldn't in most situations. The perceived value of a banana in my day-to-day life is not very high, even though they are a good source of potassium and they can be very delicious. Only, in my opinion, if they are perfectly yellow and have no brown spots. That's just me. But if I were getting over food poisoning and I was sorely in need of that potassium and a banana felt just like the perfect food to be my reintroduction to eating, and I went to the store and they were $10, I would probably pay $10 for a banana if that was the price at that moment. And I wouldn't bat an eyelash at it, even though I'm neither wealthy nor reckless with money why my perception of the value of that banana would be a lot higher than it is in a normal day. When I put on my buyer's hat, which I like to imagine looks like the hat from Holy Mountain, before I even look at the cost of something, I ask myself how much a customer would pay for it. What is the perceived value? After I make a decision there, I actually pull out the price sheet And sometimes what I think a customer would pay for it makes sense from a financial perspective. Other times, it does not. The thing is, if the price is wrong and that can be both too high or too low, the customer won't buy it. Yes, I'm not kidding you when I say that if it's priced too low, the customer also won't want it because they will assume it is less valuable, okay? you got to get it just right. If the price is wrong, I'll have to make adjustments like running a promo or taking it to markdown. Ultimately, a wrong price will correct itself. Either no one will buy the item and the price will be lowered until it is, or a seller a retailer, what have you, will never change the price, see dwindling sales, and possibly go out of business. A lot of the hand-wringing about price gouging in the world of secondhand resale is completely unwarranted. I say this as an expert in understanding what people will pay and when they will pay it. As I said earlier, either the seller will realize that they are pricing it wrong and they will fix it, or they will sell nothing and go out of business. It's just that simple. Anyone who is overpricing probably isn't very successful. If their prices seem high to you and they're making sales, I have news for you. They're not overpricing. Much like one woman's $10 banana is another person's 50 cent banana, what might seem like a high or low price to you might not feel that way to someone else. Price is very subjective, like so many other things connected to what we buy. So that's the psychology, no, no, the art of pricing. So now let's talk about thrift stores, which is ostensibly what this conversation is about. Prices are a little higher on some things and much, much higher on other things. We've already discussed that. When it comes to thrift stores wanting to get the highest possible price on the inventory they get for free, it can certainly feel kind of, you know, dirty. But remember... Thrift stores are businesses, not charities, even if the sales of that thrift store support a charity. It's important to remember that the act of selling secondhand stuff is not the charitable element of a thrift store. Rather, the sales of secondhand goods fund the charitable work. More sales equal more charitable impact. And thrift stores want to bring in as much money as possible just like the majority of the other types of businesses out there. Since the middle of the last century, thrift stores have worked to maximize sales by choosing store locations in high traffic areas and merchandising those stores in line with current retail and fashion trends. Why? Because they want people to spend more and be willing to pay higher prices for it, right? So the nicer the store feels, the more it feels like, a Macy's or some other store at a mall, the more likely a customer is to feel comfortable there and be willing to spend more money. You know, one thing we have been talking about over and over again for the past few years is how you can't identify fast fashion based on the price of the items being sold by that retailer. And that's because thanks to perceived value, companies like, say, Urban outfitters, free people, anthropology, Madewell, et cetera, can charge higher prices because the product seems more valuable. The stores have like a better look than, say, a Forever 21, right? You get like an experience when you go in there. The website seems fancier. There's better product photography and copy and whatnot. That marketing increases your perceived value of the items on the site, even though, and I will tell you this is someone who has worked in buying for a lot of different places, a lot of them are using the same vendors and factories and fabrics and everything. It is that perceived value that gets people to spend more money for essentially the same thing. And thrift stores are doing the same thing by trying to make stores seem nicer. That said, there are factors increasing the cost of running these thrift stores, and just like any other business, those costs are going to get passed on to the customers. A big cost for thrift stores is rent. You know how housing rent has been increasing all over the country for years now, literally for my entire adult life. Commercial rent has been affected too, particularly in urban areas, but kind of everywhere, And thrift stores have very specific real estate needs that make it more complex. They need loading docks, spaces for large trucks and shipping containers and industrial dumpsters. They need parking lots. They need large back-of-house spaces for sorting donations. And this kind of stuff is expensive. Maria, who is a former thrift store employee, sent in some thoughts about this. She said, While this is not exactly a specific solution for equity and thrift shops, I think that maybe something that's getting overlooked by people in this convo is that at least in urban environments, thrift stores are in trouble. Their business model isn't designed to exponentially grow in revenue. A successful thrift store will eventually plateau in sales because you can only sell so much stuff to so many people especially in a business that can't predict what it'll have on hand at any given moment. So the stores are getting priced out and closing, and there's way less of them in New York City anyway than there was when I first moved here 20 years ago. Housing Works, my former employer, closed a few shops, and some Goodwills have closed as well. These places aren't being replaced, though some more expensive vintage joints are opening in the big city to kind of fill that void. I also think more and more donations are just going straight to rag houses, sorted there and bailed for overseas or sold to these bulk vintage buyers and ending up at those big vintage warehouse stores in Brooklyn. The rag houses have the economic advantage because they can be in further away industrial areas in New Jersey and make a ton of money selling these bales. These bales of donated stuff that a charity thrift sold for pennies on the pound to the rag houses because they have nowhere to sell it. I think as long as the real estate climate is so brutal, a lot of thrifts aren't going to be able to hold on. Especially the nonprofit ones that consider affordability a priority. Every thrift store location for either company I worked at had some major rent increase at some point that sent us all into a tailspin, and that contributed to price gouging and other crappy practices that businesses do when they're desperate and their rent doubled. I guess this isn't a solution, but ultimately, unless rent gets under control in urban areas anyway, these stores are going to be in desperation mode, which isn't great for equity. Maria has a really great point there. Part of my research for both this series and the series I've been doing for the department about the history of secondhand shopping as a trend has been literally reading every single article from the last 50 years of the New York Times archive about thrift stores and secondhand shopping. Fortunately, my superpower is speed reading, so it only took maybe 20 hours <laughs> instead of a whole week. But it's, it's been really interesting to see all kinds of things play out over the span of decades. A trend I began to see developing in the 90s was that there were more and more articles about thrift stores closing or relocating into smaller spaces in less high traffic neighborhoods because they were being priced out by rising rents. Yes, it turns out that you and I have way more in common with thrift stores than we might have imagined. All along, I thought the biggest thing I had in common with thrift stores was an incredibly large inventory of dumb mugs, way more mugs than any one or two people could drink out of in a year. But it turns out thrift stores are also worrying about how they're going to pay their rent. Here's a random aside about dumb mugs. I use mine when I have parties or other get-togethers at my place. It's way better than plastic cups. I don't even need to tell you why. Also, everyone has fun finding the one mug that best represents their personality. And you're less likely to drink out of the wrong cup when you know for certain that yours says, I got crabs in Maryland. And it's a seafood joke, okay? Get your mind out of the gutter. Maryland has a lot of crabs. No, stop not those crabs, other crabs, you know? Okay, anyway, thrift stores face other rising costs that you and I can't really change. Higher transportation, facilities, higher supply costs. And since the beginning of the pandemic, the costs for trucking, fuel, and utilities have increased. And thanks to supply chain issues that still haven't fixed themselves, items like hangers, tags, and equipment have also become more expensive. That's just a fun combo of capitalism and, wait a minute, wait a minute, scarcity driving up the perceived value of something. See, I told you. Another thing that is part of this is that thrift stores that fund charitable endeavors have seen the cost of running those programs increase, too for all of the same reasons we've just discussed, and that gives them more motivation to try to get every last cent out of donated items. But there's something else that really stems from a horrible combo of overconsumption, dumping our stuff in the donation bins, and the disservice that the fashion industry has done to the world. Thrift stores have been receiving a record level of donations over the past few years, and It doesn't surprise me because we're buying, on average, 70 new garments each year, and we are wearing them for a very short period of time. Now, you may have been wearing the same clothes since 1989. You may have never bought something brand new in your life, but I want to remind you that these numbers I share with you about the 70 new garments each year, that's an average. So if you bought zero, someone else bought 140. The point is, is that people are buying a lot, a lot of clothing and wearing them for a short period of time. And they are using the donation bin as the way to get them out of their lives to make more room for more clothes that they won't wear for very long. As I told you at the beginning of the series, which feels like a hundred years ago, 60% of new clothing ends up in the landfill or the incinerator within the same year it was made. That's 60 billion garments each year. A lot of this doesn't go straight to the landfill, it starts its journey in the donation bins. And an increased volume of donations requires more employees and time to sort and process. These employees cost money, although many thrift stores, particularly the Goodwill, go out of their way to fight a higher minimum wage they do what they can to avoid paying workers a living wage, and they don't always provide enough staffing in stores because they're trying to not spend this money. Goodwill also pays workers with disabilities below the minimum wage, and that's unfortunately legal thanks to antiquated laws. We've talked about that a lot here in the past, and I'll try to remember to share those episodes in the show notes, but I mean... I will just say this, and this is, I'm saying this not to guilt you, to send you on any path in your life, or to sway what you do. For me, the Goodwill is my last resort when it comes to thrifting because I don't like the way that that company operates. Okay, to make matters worse, many of these donations are just not great quality or are straight up trash only slowing down the process and requiring more people to handle them and therefore costing a lot more money to process. The volume of donations and the varying quality is just so massive that only 10 to 20% of all donations are sold in the thrift store. Because that flow of new donations never stops, stores must move product out as fast as possible because new stuff will be arriving in 10 minutes, 10 hours, or 10 days. It's constant. So that leaves us with the 80 to 90% of donations that are not sold. And they face several different fates, One is that they might be downcycled, meaning like shredded, into insulation, carpet, industrial rags, that kind of stuff. Um, They might be sold off to other thrift stores or vintage dealers, other retailers. You know, we talked about urban outfitters buying stuff by the pallet, for example. They might be buying some of the stuff. Um, It might be exported into the global secondhand clothing industry. Many of these garments will end up in the global south. And basically, we're passing the burden on to others where they will end up in a landfill, most likely. Um, Or here, they might stay in our country and they will go to the landfill or the incinerator. When that happens, the thrift stores pay disposal fees for these items. They don't just like back up, dump it, and drive away as fast as possible. Disposal is kind of the least appealing option for thrift stores because it costs money rather than bringing money in. Regardless of where these unsold donations end up, thrift stores bear the expense of sorting, packing, and transporting all of them. This includes trucks, fuel, drivers, along with the workers loading these trucks. And when we get down to brass tacks here, desirable items that will probably sell are priced higher to cover the cost of transporting and or disposing of the 80 to 90% of donations that will never sell in the store. Everyone who shops at the thrift store, no matter how much money they have or how much they buy, is bearing the burden of all of that overconsumption of shitty stuff. We're all paying the price here. So how does this get better? I think it starts with us changing both our shopping and Our donation habits. And I'm going to get into that when we get into our next what, how could there be better stuff in the thrift stores? Because this is definitely linked. But here are some thoughts from members of our community. First, let's listen to a message from Tamara.
1: So I mostly just wanted to share thoughts touching on your first couple of questions which were, how do thrift stores return to a more accessible level and how do the reselling platforms make resale more financially equitable for resellers? Well, if that's not their intention to make it more accessible and their real goal is profit, then unfortunately, they're not going to do it on their own. However, smart businesses will monitor their customers' behaviors, so we just have to shift our behaviors, which is totally in our control. That can look like refusing to purchase anything that is outrageously priced which can range differently for different people but i think we can all agree that charging 30 dollars for a filthy grimy coffee maker is outrageous also as mentioned in your previous episode to just stop donating garbage because it's convenient properly recycling and disposing our things is just better for everyone in the long run it's Monkey see, monkey do. If one person starts doing it, others will do it too. And I get it. Like people in our society suffer from anxiety and overwhelm. So I totally understand just wanting to conveniently get rid of things, but it does just hurt your own community. If someone buys something and it turns out it's broken when they get home, they're just going to be jaded and to want to trust buying at a thrift store again they're probably going to buy a new or cheaper version at say Walmart and they end up just paying for more in the long run. And honestly, maybe instead of buying and selling to thrift stores, why not donate to resellers or better yet sell your things to a reseller at a low price or consign with them if you want it gone fast and you don't have the energy to resell it yourself I don't think it's hard to find resellers either. I mean, Instagram makes things so easy um, and everything is just so accessible online. And to answer your next question about platforms like Poshmark, again, they're not going to change their business models because these are the tactics that they've created in order to make as much money as possible. The only way they'll be forced to change is if people stop going to them as much. So people can do more community-driven events like clothing swaps, garage sales, or even Facebook marketplace. I mean, that was based off of buy and sell groups created by communities to begin with. And for the time being, it is free. Perhaps we're paying for it by our data being collected. So nothing is ever 100% free, but we're still focusing on keeping it within our communities. Or again, find a reseller that you really like Um, that you can buy off of. Because when you support small businesses versus a large corporation, that money is more likely to go back into the community. You're creating a circular economy by keeping money within the community. Tomorrow has
0: a lot of good points here. Don't donate trash to the thrift stores because yes, that does drive up prices. Don't buy stuff that is overpriced at these thrift stores. Force the thrift stores to correct their bad pricing. And maybe give your stuff to a reseller to sell and donate your share of the proceeds to a charity that matters to you. I would love to hear all of your thoughts on that idea. I will say that I want to keep this conversation going. So so many times throughout this episode, I'm going to remind you to send your thoughts and ideas my way. And maybe we can do some follow-up episodes. Okay, next I'm gonna share some thoughts from Stacy that touch on both pricing and how we could make thrift stores more accessible in a way that has nothing to do with the stuff we buy. Stacy says, I think thrifting is already fairly equitable. Even with rising prices, it's still very affordable. And thrifts are open to anyone who has the time and the physical ability to sift through them. When I see complaints about fairness and thrifting, two themes dominate. First, that poor people can't afford to thrift anymore, which I think we all can agree is a canard. And second, that everyone deserves to have nice things, which I agree with in principle, but it's a materialistic point of view and it isn't really a social problem. Deserving is not the same as being entitled to it, and I don't think consuming name-brand clothing has anything to do with equity or justice. This, too, seems like consumerism sinking so deeply into people's brains that they can't imagine life without it. One way I'd like thrifts to be more equitable is being navigable for people with disabilities, My partner has terrible knees and can't thrift anymore because he can't stand that long. So I know just having places to sit here and there would help for some folks, and no doubt there's much more they could do. I'd also like to see more thoughtful pricing. I don't begrudge thrifts getting more for better items. Raising money is their mission after all. But why not skew prices low on everything else, especially overabundant categories like t-shirts? They should also validate their higher prices with comps rather than winging it. Orthopedia has a partnership with the Salvation Army. Maybe they all should? Thrift stores have to decide to do those things. We can't force them. But as their shoppers and donors, we can speak up and make our wishes known. It's not enough to talk shit about Goodwill on Instagram. We should write them and tell them what we think. I agree with both Stacy and Tamara here. We have so much power as both customers and people who care to force change in the area of thrift stores. As I've said before many, many times in the span of Clothes Horse, only two things get retailers to change their ways, the law and the fear of losing sales. It is so easy to feel like a teeny tiny grain of sand in a vast desert, to feel as if you are powerless In the face of these big baddies, but your power as a customer is pretty huge. I say that as a buyer who has spent years and years shifting and changing to make customers happy. Thrift stores are no different than any other business in that way. The last thing I'll say in terms of pricing in thrift stores. If you want the more high-value things you're getting rid of to go to people with less money to spend, don't put those items in the donation bin. I guess I'll just give you a little spoiler alert here. And the next section of this episode, we're going to talk about mindful rehoming. And ultimately, mindful rehoming is the best way to ensure that people who need the things you're giving away actually get them. <laughs> Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed, vintage, or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycled garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person. But they also have a website, so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at Gabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at Gabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylan Page Life and Style. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Fagavan Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, let's move on to the next what. How could there be better stuff in thrift stores? As Alex and I discussed in part two of this series, resellers are often blamed for the lack of good stuff in thrift stores. In fact, I will just say the pricing and the lack of so-called good stuff in the thrift stores are the two biggest... I don't know. The biggest motivators, I think, for a lot of this anti-reseller rhetoric, and maybe it leads to sharing other myths alongside it. But I do think that these are the two things I see cited first, and then followed up with other misinformation to defend that anti-reseller stance. So this is a big one. How do we make the stuff better in the thrift stores? I think we need to get started by addressing the elephant in the room. And no, we won't eat this one either. What is good is very subjective, meaning a personal opinion. One person's good is another person's low-rise jeans nightmare, right? But that said, what is in thrift stores right now has changed. And this is caused by a few things, some of which, believe it or not, are good things. Some are very bad things. So let's start with the good reasons what we find in the thrift stores is different than it used to be. First off, more people are opting to resell their best unwanted stuff rather than donating it. And the wide variety of online platforms has made this so much easier. History has shown time and time again that when the economy is less than stellar, like right now, more people opt to sell their unwanted things rather than just giving them away. Every dollar matters, right? I think that probably resonates with a lot of you. It definitely resonates with me. In the 1970s, inflation-strapped Americans actually sold their stuff at yard sales and flea markets to make a little bit of extra cash. And as a result, thrift stores felt a reduction in donations. During the Great Recession of the aughts, People sold their stuff on eBay or at buy-sell trade stores like Crossroads and Buffalo Exchange. Those types of businesses saw huge growth thanks to people wanting to sort of recoup some of the money invested in the things they owned. Again, thrift stores saw a drop in donations. Today... With inflation and cost of living outpacing wages, more people are selling their most desirable unwanted stuff online. And there are a plethora of platforms. It has never been easier to resell something, although it might be a little bit annoying because you might get a lot of messages, right? That's like the only hard part of it. And it's way more lucrative, obviously, than just dropping it all in a donation bin. And so what we see hitting the resale market is going to be brand name stuff, higher price stuff, uh, things that are just kind of a little bit more expensive to begin with. What we probably aren't going to see as much of on these platforms, although we still do, are maybe like clothes from Target or Amazon or Shein. We're going to see like the bigger ticket items. I actually think this is a really good thing. Yes, you're not gonna find it at the thrift stores anymore and that can be disappointing, but by actually selling it to another person who is seeking it out, because I don't know about you, but my biggest complaint about most of these online resale platforms is like you have to know exactly what you're looking for or you will never find it. It's not like window shopping. It's not like combing through a rack at the thrift store. So people who find it and buy it theoretically really want this and therefore it increases the chance that a garment is going to get a lot of use i think peer-to-peer reselling just like reseller to customer reselling i think these both are really good things for the planet and its people okay next and this is another great one that makes me a little giddy inside we are opting to rehome our stuff within our community rather than jamming it into a thrift bin. I call this practice mindful rehoming and we've talked about it on several episodes here on Close Horse and on Instagram. You know, when you think about it, the facts about the fate of donations are pretty grim. We've touched on them here already today, but let's just say it again, only 10 to 20% of the stuff that hits thrift stores will be resold by the store. If your brain freezes up every time you hear a percentage, which is very normal, most people are really tricked up by percentages and fractions, perhaps because percentages are actually fractions. I could go into that at length, kind of dream sometimes of a podcast that makes math more accessible, but that's neither here nor there. When we talk about 10 to 20% of the things you donated being sold by the thrift store, that means if you give 10 things to the thrift store, only one or two of them will be sold there. The other nine or eight will head off somewhere else. If you donate 100 things, then you're looking at 10 to 20 of those things being sold in the store. And 80 or 90 of those things heading somewhere else. When you know all of that, it makes donation a lot less appealing, especially if your strategy is really extending the lives of these items. More and more of us are opting to mindfully rehome these items within our community via buy nothing groups, our friends and neighbors, clothing swaps, free bins, and mutual aid groups. Obviously, I think this is great because it actually ensures that items get more use and it can help items get into the hands of people who really need it. We're gonna talk about mindful rehoming at more length in the next section of this episode. So put a pin in that. There's lots of pins floating out there right now. I'm very aware of it. (laughs) Okay, so those are the two good things that are having an impact on what is in thrift stores right now. The next one I would say is more neutral, meaning neither good nor bad, even if I don't love it. It's really just more of a function of thrift stores wanting to maximize the amount of money they bring in. Many thrift stores never put the so-called good stuff out on the floor, opting to sell it online instead. This ease of selling and shopping online has benefited the thrift stores too. They can make more money from an item by selling it online than they can by just putting it out on the sales floor where it could be damaged or stolen or just overlooked. And so what kind of stuff are they putting online? Anything that they deem vintage, collectible, high end, definitely fancier jewelry, brands, that kind of thing. If you go to shopgoodwill.com, there is so much stuff on there right now. But even the smaller thrift stores have their own eBay accounts. And I totally remember walking by and being nosy and peering in the office of one of my favorite thrift stores back in Pennsylvania. This one funds a drug treatment program. And I could see a volunteer in there listing all this incredible dishware on eBay. And I was like, ah, but that's how it goes. And they need money to run the drug treatment center, right? So even though it annoys me, I'm also not actually annoyed because I know the intent is good, right? Okay, so that's one more reason why what is in the thrift store has changed. So we've got two good ones, one neutral one, and now we have the more depressing reasons that stuff in thrift stores might not be as good. The stuff you see in the thrift store reflects what people consumed and rejected, One thing I've learned in all of my research is that thrift stores are basically a mirror of what's going on in the world at any given time. And thrift stores sort of rely on overconsumption for their business model. Not their customers overconsuming per se, although they're probably not mad about them buying more stuff than they need, but rather their donors overconsuming, there is a direct correlation between shopping and donation. If donors are constantly buying new clothes and upgrading their furniture and home goods and electronics sooner than necessary, then the thrift stores benefit from a steady flow of new inventory. In a time where more and more people are cutting back or trying to turn unwanted things into cash, thrift stores receive the stuff that donors overconsumed but did not find valuable enough to resell or mindfully rehome. And what does that mean we get? We get the items that for the donors have the lowest perceived value. They don't think anyone would want to buy it from them. They don't think anyone in their community would want it. And they don't want it themselves. The stuff at thrift stores represents the fast fashionification of this century. We should expect to see clothing primarily from the last 20 years in the thrift stores. We can also expect to see some clothing from the 90s, but with each decade before that, we will encounter progressively less items from that era and, depending on the thrift store they may be pulling that stuff to sell online, right? Because they see it as true vintage. So yes, most clothing in thrift stores right now is from this century. And what happened in this century? The rise of fast fashion, which means that the quality tends to be lower. Although if it's from the earlier part of this century, it's probably a lot better. We saw a real shift around 2008, 2009, in the quality of clothing being sold. It also means there is the sheer volume of clothing making its way into donation bins is higher than ever. There's just so much coming because as a reminder, the fast fashion model relies on us buying as much stuff as possible as often as possible, which leads to a lot of stuff heading into the donation bins and then the thrift store. The clothes at the thrift store aren't as great, not because the good stuff has been picked out by you, me, the resellers, anyone, but because the companies making those clothes decided the good was no longer the goal. Profitable was more important. And now the majority of these clothes are a burden, sad to say, but that's the best way to describe it, a burden to our planet and its people. They were made cheap and fast with exploitation and waste as key ingredients. Most will never be worn again because the perceived value of these fast, cheap clothes, it's so low, No one wants to pass it on to someone else. No one wants to keep it for themselves. And no one wants to buy it at the thrift store. It's really, really sad. It's almost like I feel like I need to take a moment here to reflect on just how, for lack of a better term here, how fucked up it is. How disappointing, how enraging, how depressing, how wasteful and cruel and just... (sighs) unmindful it is. So knowing all of this, how do we impact the quality, the perceived goodness of what we see in thrift stores? Because we're not the ones out there making this clothing, right? I think the easy answer here that I will just say is not a great answer is because it's kind of impossible, is to stop buying fast fashion, To me, that kind of like, just stop, cut it off, don't buy anything new ever again, that kind of thinking, it has a weird tinge of diet culture to it because it's not realistic to tell yourself you'll never buy new clothes again. And what happens when you tell yourself that you're never going to buy new clothes again and then you do buy new clothes again, you start to feel guilty, you start to rationalize it. Subtly, it's not a big deal that these clothes aren't that great or the impact that these brands have on the planet. And you buy more and more and more. And over time, the guilt goes away, right? Cutting ourselves off cold turkey, making unrealistic goals for ourselves just sets us up for a lot of extra guilt and sadness and frustration and ultimately giving up and moving away from this thing we really care about. In the era of fast fashion, the vast majority of brands operate using the fast fashion model. But people need clothes, right? Our bodies change, our lives change, who we are changes. And yes, I urge you to shop secondhand first as often as possible, but it doesn't always work out. So yes, cutting back is a big thing, but it's unrealistic to say like, we'll never buy these things again there are more realistic things that we can do. First, we, and I mean the collective we here, we have to stop buying so much stuff. And we specifically have to stop buying a ton of disappointing stuff that we barely wear and pass on to the donation bin. If we didn't want it, why would someone else want it? Our perceived value of these items is not that much different than other humans, right? This means that we need to buy less. I'm not telling you to never buy anything again, right? We need to buy less, make a concerted effort to buy less and to try as often as possible to choose items with longevity. Items with longevity don't have to be more expensive. They might be, but they don't have to be. They just have to have a lot more potential use in our lives. Rather than being one-off novelty items, They should mix and match with the rest of our wardrobe, and they should fit our lifestyles and priorities. This means breaking some bad habits, buying a new dress for every social event, buying a new suitcase full of brand new clothes for every trip. These are the things that pass in and out of our lives at the fastest velocity, and changing those behaviors is a big step. Also, just slowing down the process of shopping. You know, we talk a lot about slow fashion, and I think it encompasses a lot of different things. It does mean slowing down fast fashion. It means moving away from fast fashion, right? Slowing down the production process, slowing down the way trends come in and out of our lives, but also means slowing down the buying process, by really exploring our options and thinking hard about them, thinking about where we're going to wear them, thinking about what we're going to wear them with, and thinking about if we're ready to take care of them in a way that will extend the life of them. Okay, next, and this goes back to our power as consumers, don't give your money that you worked very hard for to assholes who make clothes that don't fit you well, or fall apart really fast. If you buy something from a brand that falls apart or pills up on after a few wears, don't buy from them again. And spread the word. Tell your friends and family. Harness the power of word of mouth advertising against this brand who's making shitty stuff. And of course, let the brand know that they won't be receiving any more of your money until they get their act together. Also, Take care of your clothes by removing stains, laundering them carefully, and mending and repairing. You know, I always like to think about who will wear my clothes next, not where they will go or how I will rid myself of the burden of them, but rather what it will be like for the next person who wears them. And that motivates me to ensure that they're in great shape for the next wearer. And one last thing you can do is get involved in pushing for EPR legislation in your state or country. This is something that actually, uh, the impact of this cannot be overestimated because it would be huge. It would be very impactful for both our planet and thrift stores and what is available in the secondhand market. Extended producer responsibility, that's what EPR stands for, means making retailers and brands financially responsible for what happens to the things that they sell us when we can no longer use them. That doesn't happen right now. Basically, it's like we buy it from them and they're like, peace, enjoy. We'll never see this thing again. Don't talk to us about it. We've already moved on. We're already producing all this other new stuff. We don't even remember this one. And then what happens is the burden of the end of life of that product, if it breaks or is not repairable or a million other things that could happen to it, the burden of its disposal lands on us. Here is a good explanation of EPR from the California Product Stewardship Council, also known as the CPSC, an organization that is working on EPR legislation and pilot programs in California. Extended producer responsibility is a strategy to place a shared responsibility for end-of-life product management on the producers and all entities involved in the product chain instead of the general public, while also encouraging product design or redesign that minimizes the negative impacts on human health and the environment at every stage of the product's life cycle." This allows the cost of processing and recycling or disposal to be incorporated into the total cost of a product. This also places primary responsibility on the producer or brand owner who ultimately makes design and marketing decisions for their products. It also creates a setting for recycled commodity markets to emerge, which helps support a true circular economy. So basically, it will force producers to use fabrics and other materials that are recyclable or upcyclable or easily repaired. And most importantly, that last a lot longer so that they don't have to deal with their end of life as fast. It's a win-win for all of us. And even though the producers might not feel this way at first, it's a win for them too. It also could change a lot of the difficulties, the challenges many of us face with getting not really clothing, but other things like computers, electronics, appliances repaired. Over the years, companies have made it really, really hard to repair these things. Um, And there are a lot of people fighting for right to repair, which we've talked about on previous episodes here, which would allow more independent repair people to pop up for these things. And it would force these companies to make parts for repair more readily available, which they're not doing right now because the goal is to get us to buy more new stuff rather than fix the stuff we have. So EPR would also change that in a really positive way. Joanne Brash is the Special Projects Manager for CPSC, and she sent me some information about their EPR program after seeing my post on Instagram, which totally made my day. And here's what she says about EPR. The EPR program is designed to be back of house for thrifts, so they can get funding to separate usables from unusables and get free recycling for what are deemed unusable, according to the criteria set in the state approved plan. We designed the program to support local thrifts, small and large, and to utilize the established infrastructure to serve as a collection system for recycling. I've asked Joanne to be a guest here on the pod to tell us more about this, so stay tuned. I don't know if it will happen, but it would be pretty cool, right? (laughs) Once again, what's great about EPR is that, for one, it forces retailers and brands to make products that both last longer and are more easily recycled and reused. And this could automatically elevate the quality of the things in the thrift store because they will be higher quality in the first place. And the flow of donations could slow as people wear and use things longer. We've already talked about how that huge flow of unwanted stuff into the thrift stores actually costs the thrift stores a lot of money because they have to pay a lot of people to sort and process. So if the flow of donations slowed down, theoretically, prices could go down in thrift stores. Furthermore, it could take a lot of the disposal burden off of thrift stores, which also costs them a lot of money, if that could be diminished, that would also, in theory, lower prices in the thrift store. Now, the whole caveat there, I'll say, is that that also means that thrift stores have to be willing to lower their prices, right? EPR is something that can be regulated on both a national and a state level, but we have to let our elected representatives know that we want it. This means emailing and calling and starting petitions, organizing with others to have public information meetings about it. I think this kind of legislation can be achieved via grassroots community organizing and I am really excited about the prospect of this because I think this is something that we we can do. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground St. Even's is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at we're underscore st. Dot evens. That's where Saint Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republica dot Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and deadstock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans with something for every budget. Discover more at the Okay, now let's talk about the next what. How do we ensure that the people who need things like clothes and home goods are getting them? I want to start with some thoughts from Frankie. Frankie says, I upcycle clothing as a small part of my income, and I want the clothes to be accessible, but also to honor my labor. Because I get most of the clothing and fabric from the bins, the main cost is my own labor. This allows me to do sliding scale pricing. People who have more expendable income often give a little tip, so it all balances out in the end. If someone does a lot of volunteering in our community, I will sometimes just give them something I've made to say thank you for their free labor." but I don't think the responsibility of making secondhand accessible should fall solely on the resellers. In many towns, including mine, we have the really, really free market where people bring whatever they no longer want and can take anything they do want for free. It's usually a lot of clothes more than anything else. This is one outlet for mindfully rehoming clothes outside of the thrift stores. I also offer mending at these events, which I think is an important part of improving accessibility. I save so much money by shopping primarily at the really, really free market that I can occasionally afford to buy something special by an ethical maker such as Panty Witch. I don't think Panty Witch should charge less for all the work she does. I totally agree, Frankie. You know, I received a lot of messages and comments telling me that it was up to the resellers to ensure that clothing and home goods and other items are accessible to people who can't afford them. And I I don't love that, actually. Yes, if a reseller has the resources to pick up extra inventory and get it into the hands of people who need it, that is great. Go for it. I love it. That's what community is. But a lot of resellers just don't have the financial luxury of buying stuff to give away. As we've touched on many times over the last few episodes, sure, some resellers are making a good living. Many are not, right? And to expect them to also then bear the burden of making secondhand items accessible to more people feels a little bit unfair. You know who does have the luxury of a lot of extra stuff to give away? Thrift stores, right? They're the ones getting the massive amount of donations. And while some already give vouchers to low-income customers to get free or heavily discounted merchandise, most do not. That's one way we can help by writing letters and emails and calling our local thrift stores or just write to the biggest thrift store chains. And let's ask them to provide items free of charge to people in need. I was actually toying with an idea of starting a petition to ask Goodwill to do this because at this point, Goodwill is the largest nonprofit thrift in the United States, right? And they They have kind of like the Kleenex of donation, right? People just say, oh, drop it at the Goodwill. They don't say drop it at a thrift store. It's always like at the Goodwill, at the Goodwill. So they get a wild amount of donations. They don't give any of this away. And in fact, when I think about high prices in thrift stores, the first place that comes to mind is Goodwill. So yeah, I thought we could start a petition demanding that they start giving out vouchers to low-income customers. What do you think of this? I, I think we could get a lot of signatures if we shared it enough. So if you think this is something that we should try, let me know. I can't guarantee it would change anything because sometimes I am shocked by how obtuse some companies are when it comes to public opinion, public demand, public outcry. But it's still better than sitting around waiting for change to happen. We have to try to make it happen. Frankie's mention of the really, really free market brings me to the next way we can for sure ensure that stuff is going to people who need it, and that's mindful rehoming. I'm going to go ahead and say this. The donation bin should be your last resort. Because in the world of mindful rehoming, we take the time and effort to redistribute our belongings to others who truly need and want them. Yeah, it takes time forethought, a lot of posting and Googling and messaging, but it's true circularity and action, getting these important items to someone who truly needs them rather than passing them off to a thrift store that might just send them off to the landfill or charge money for these items, putting them out of reach financially for others who are truly in need. By mindfully rehoming, we ensure that there are no income parameters to getting access to the things you need and we ensure that they get use. We live in an era where mindful rehoming is easier than ever because most of the options can be accessed through your phone. There's your network of social media friends and acquaintances, your neighbors via Nextdoor or your Buy Nothing group, total strangers on Craigslist, FreeCycle or Facebook Marketplace, and a plethora of mutual aid and community organizations found via Google search. In our old home in Bird in Hand, which I'm very homesick for every single day, there was a mutual aid group on Facebook for the whole county, because this is like a rural area, right? And people would just say, Hey, I need a backpack for my kid, or I just moved out of a halfway house into an apartment and I need kitchen stuff and towels. And all of us would just drop things off for the person who asked. It was that simple. It was so direct. And it didn't involve hoping that a thrift store would take care of it for us. So here are some best practices around mindful rehoming. It does take more time and advance notice than a last minute trip to the goodwill, but it's time well spent. So give yourself that time. If you're moving, don't wait until the day the moving truck arrives to start rehoming these things procrastination leads to a last-minute trip to the Goodwill or one of those random donation bins in the Target parking lot where you're just jamming trash bag after trash bag in, just trying to get it out of your life. Take no for an answer. Don't pass the burden of the stuff you don't want onto someone else and call before showing up with a load of stuff at a shelter or another organization in your community. The goal here is to give to people not donation bins, not big corporate thrift stores. So look within your community first, including free closets, church groups, and, you know, like I said, mutual aid organizations. Ask your friends, your neighbors, and your coworkers for suggestions and share your own positive, mindful rehoming experiences with everyone you know so they can get in on it too. Let's be honest here. Moving away from the binary options of donation bin or trash bin is not easy. And in fact, it's pretty groundbreaking in the fast fashion era, right? So we're all gonna have to share ideas with others, be receptive to new outlets for the things we no longer want or need, and really, maybe not really acquire those things in the first place. After all, we're gonna be slowing down our shopping, and when we rehome things, we know that at least right now, we can't rely on thrift stores to get them into the hands of people that need them. So let's skip the thrift store and go direct. That's what mindful rehoming is. Okay, the next what is how can we forge a path towards making resale more equitable for resellers? This is a hard one from the consumer side because the reality is that resellers are giving a cut of their sales to Resale platforms, markets, payment services, shipping companies, and so much more. I know that my friends at Style Crush are trying to build a platform that functions more like a co-op, taking very little money from resellers, and viewing them as more like business owners than users of the platform. So please go check out Style Crush. I would love for them to just take over this entire thing. I also think that we need to stop expecting free shipping. Because as we all know by now, shipping is never free. Someone is always paying for it, and it's usually the seller. I also want sellers to ensure that they aren't underselling one another. This is something I discovered last year as I worked on the Etsy-sodes. Sellers on Etsy were being pressured by both the platform and its algorithm to compete via two things, low prices, basically who was selling it for the cheapest, and offering free shipping. Basically, it meant that no one selling on that platform could make a living wage. Ultimately, sellers have to opt out of this, and I know that is really hard, which is why buyers have to support this shift out of sell cheaply, free shipping, all that stuff. If we're not transitioning our overconsumption of fast fashion to overconsumption of secondhand clothing, but rather making more mindful, slow decisions about what we buy secondhand, we might feel a bit more willing to pay the true value of something, to pay for shipping, rather than trying to offer a way into a hot deal. Remember, we all have a lot of work to do to reconfigure our sense of value and price. The fast fashion era has really messed it up our perceived value is super wacky at this point. So slowing down our shopping, taking more time to think about things, that will give us the space to get our sense of value back in check. And if we're not over-consuming, we probably have a little bit more money to spend a little bit more money. Stacy had some other thoughts about things resellers could do to show the value of their hard work and also influence others into the slow fashion way of life. And I think they are a great transition into the last what of this episode. So this is what Stacy has to say. If buyers get the impression we're charging an arm and a leg for just anything, then no wonder they might start to think we're ripoff artists trying to scam people rather than providing a service or adding value. To me, a good seller will make explicitly clear what they do and do not know about their items. Age, origin, conditions, size, etc. Listings should be descriptive and specific and include at least one measurement, even for things with a size tag. Photos should be clear and thorough. The buyer should be able to tell exactly what they're getting and have a fair chance at determining whether it will fit. When set up at a market, everything should be tagged with a price so customers don't worry they're being sized up. I also think we should encourage good stewardship by including care instructions and talking about repairing and thoughtfully rehoming the things we sell. It's a matter of professionalism to me. If I think it's special enough to want to sell it, I want others to understand how it's special too, and that it's worth what I'm asking for it, and that it is worth preserving and caring for. Yes to all of this. We tend to undervalue secondhand clothing, which of course does not surprise me because we also undervalue brand new clothing. While I don't want to pile more work on resellers, I do think they have a great opportunity to lead by example to change behaviors amongst their customer base by demonstrating the value and longevity of the things they sell. I also, as I mentioned earlier, think that a lot of resellers aren't doing these things not because they're looking to scam someone, but because they just don't know better. Once again, we need to give resellers a little bit of grace here before just jumping to the conclusion that if they didn't include a measurement or the photos aren't great, that they're like scammy monsters. There really isn't a university of reselling out there for learning all of this. And people kind of learn it as they're going. And now that I'm thinking about this, I think that it would make a great episode of the podcast. So I'm gonna bookmark that idea for now. We have a lot of work ahead of us to get more people to reevaluate their own perceived value of clothing. But I do think these small things both with the way resellers are listing and talking about what they're selling, and the way we, as people who care about this stuff, are talking about it with others. These small things would have a major impact. Okay, I told you that I thought that Stacy's message was a great transition into the last part of this, the final what of this episode, which is what really started this whole series in the first place. How can we de-escalate the ever-intensifying anti-reseller rhetoric happening on social media right now? When Alex initially approached me about working on this series, I almost said no. Like my first you know, knee-jerk response was going to be no, because I was scared. I had already had a few scary, upsetting, infuriating experiences on social media just because I had dared to talk about thrifting and secondhand. Every experience seemed to involve someone unwilling to take a minute or two just to read the whole post or caption, but at the same time, they were totally fine spending hours sending me harassing and insulting messages. So I was scared because it's not like I could reason with these people and talk them into seeing things my way. But I could also see that this rhetoric was having a very serious negative impact in many ways that cannot be ignored. Let's walk through those. First off, we've already established that all of the arguments used in anti-reseller rhetoric are misinformation. And that misinformation can turn people away from shopping secondhand that is very distressing for me because we need everyone to buy 75% less brand new clothing. That's what Earth Logic calls for. That means shifting everyone to shopping secondhand first as soon as possible. Secondhand is a big component of a more sustainable ethical future. We have to normalize secondhand, and anti-reseller rhetoric just does the opposite What by making it confusing, by stigmatizing it. Let's explain that a little bit more. If you're seeing enough people saying that only poor people, and that's poor in quotes, hate it, only poor people should thrift, or if you read that resellers are stealing clothes from poor people, you're going to start feeling as if shopping secondhand is the least ethical choice. You might be asking if you're too wealthy to shop secondhand. You're not. Furthermore, if you're reading that lots of resellers are unethical, selfish, insert another negative adjective here of your choice, you're going to feel as if shopping secondhand from a reseller is risky or at the very least super unethical. Here's the thing that really grinds my gears. People who are turned off of shopping secondhand thanks to all this misinformation and yes, That is definitely happening. I have received messages from people who are very concerned because they're worried that they're too privileged to shop secondhand, but they don't want to buy fast fashion. And there is no easy answer for them other than like, no, please shop secondhand, right? People who are turned off of this, who are turned away from shopping secondhand are going to, one, buy new stuff. And two, most likely buy fast fashion because, as we know, most brands and retailers use the fast fashion business model in 2023. That moves us farther away from our goal of cutting our consumption of new clothing by 75%. It also squashes this new future circular secondhand economy that we need to build for the sake of our planet, I have no doubt that some of these anti-reseller sentiments began with good intentions, but ultimately, they are damaging to the larger movement away from fast fashion and overconsumption. We got to knock it off. Next, it's a distraction from the very real issues of environmental and social justice created by the fashion industry. A few of us have been kind of talking on social media, like on Instagram, is... Is fast fashion using bots to push this information out there? I kind of wouldn't be surprised at this point because sometimes they have a little bit bit of a bot quality to them. And here's the thing. The fast fashion industry kind of has, I don't know, an impending PR nightmare on their hands as more and more people learn the true nature of the industry, its impact, how it treats its workers, as more and more people realize the low quality, the engineered low quality of the stuff we're being sold, that's a PR nightmare. It's not a cute look. It makes everything they sell seem worthless. There goes the perceived value of what they sell, right? It's not something that the fast fashion industry wants a lot of people talking about. I'm not saying that they really are paying bots. I don't know how you pay bots. Probably, you know, you use Bitcoin or something. Anyway, not my world. I am not saying that they are hiring bots. But then again, distracting us into thinking that resellers, that second hand is somehow more unethical, somehow more damaging to the world around us than fast fashion It's a pretty bold manipulation right there. The fashion industry produces about 150 billion, that's with a B, new garments every single year. And as we discussed in the last episode, 30% of them will never be sold or worn. That's 45 billion garments. There are about 8 billion people on the planet. That is, it's disgraceful. The fast fashion model depends on overconsumption, right? Selling us as much stuff as possible, as often as possible. We've talked about that. And in order to sell us all this stuff while remaining profitable, workers are abused and exploited. The garments themselves are not made to last. And the industry takes no responsibility for its wasteful abuse and practices. I mean, ultimately, this industry has a harmful impact on just about every aspect of our planet. These are the issues that we should be confronting on social media. And as we've already discussed, many of the issues blamed on resellers are actually directly caused by the fashion and retail industry. You know, consumers are cycling through clothing faster than ever thanks to the steady flow of low-quality, poorly-fitting garments created by the industry. There is less good stuff in thrift stores because the industry is not making good stuff. The cost of dealing with this just steady flow of donated clothes and other stuff has driven up prices at thrift stores because dealing with this stuff is very expensive. The fast fashion industry doesn't have to take responsibility for any of that. The industry also dumps its unsold inventory on thrift stores, crowding out actual good quality secondhand clothing. Why are we harassing resellers why are we fighting about this on social media and yes this kind of rhetoric this these conversations these battles in the comments section they are eating up a lot of energy and time that should be better spent on holding this industry accountable on calling out this industry for what it does. you and I know what this industry does the vast majority of people do not. I would much rather see people posting on social media about what this industry does so more people can learn about it than sharing stories and comments and other posts faking up, making up really low-quality memes that blame resellers for all of these problems that were not caused by them. That waste of energy and time, honestly, it's disgraceful as well. Uh, so just want to add here that misogyny, as Alex and I discussed in the previous episode, is at the core of a lot of the anti-reseller rhetoric. Ew, who wants to be reinforcing that bullshit, right? You know, as we said, our culture has a fucked up tradition of minimizing and insulting the interests, talents, and hard work of women, trans people, and non-binary people. When you get down to it, a lot of the harshest criticism and wildest comment threads target resellers who are not cis men. Go take a look for yourself. It's such a difference. Furthermore, a lot of the hard work involved in reselling, like laundry, mending, customer service, has often been considered women's work and therefore constantly devalued, labeled as unskilled. We know otherwise, but I got to tell you, this internalized misogyny that lurks deep within all of us, regardless of gender, it changes our perceived value of the things we buy from resellers because it makes us feel like, how much should I really pay for all that work? It's not that important, right? It is important work and it is hard work and we should pay for it. So I think also thinking about sort of like our price resistance to secondhand, our perceived value of it and realizing that really we're subconsciously devaluing this work because of generations of misogyny, that can really help you work on your relationship with price and value as well. And I just have to say it, like this is a community that is driven by women, trans people, and non-binary people. And we are a key component of a more sustainable circular economy. So let's step up and band together. Next, and this part is scary to me, The harmful language and behavior that we find in these anti reseller pylons are dangerous and dehumanizing, which makes it even more dangerous. Let's say it all together no one should receive death threats for selling secondhand clothing. Okay? No one should receive death threats, period. But (laughs) it's happening. Comment sections on these posts have spiraled out of control with resellers receiving death threats and clear implications of violence. Furthermore, these conversations are misusing very serious language that is not, sorry to say this, appropriate to the conversation about reselling. This includes accusing resellers of committing genocide, colonizing thrift stores, stealing from the poor, or comparing them to landlords. This misuse of language dehumanizes resellers by portraying them as monstrous villains, making them easier victims of violence. Earlier this week, I did an Instagram Live talking about all of this. And when I got to this section of my conversation talking about how this harmful language is dangerous, I used an example, which is like, hopefully you've never had to be exposed to this, which is the way women are referred to on incel subreddits or you know message boards, that kind of stuff. Um, in that incel community, women are dehumanized as being basically animals, like semi-sentient animals who can't make decisions on their own, are very emotional, manipulative, attracted to money, uh, need to be controlled, need to sort of have good behavior, the kind of like beaten into them, both figuratively and literally. And the way women are discussed in these conversations really dehumanizes them. So it makes it easier to abuse them, to commit violence against them, or to just even be nasty to them in day-to-day life, right? This kind of language that I see thrown out there against resellers is really alarming because it accomplishes the same thing. And I had a really kind of, I don't know, upsetting experience this week where unbeknownst to me, there has been a lot of really intense dialogue within the vintage community on Instagram about resellers as well. And uh, while their conversation is a little bit different, it does include a lot of the myths that we've been discussing here. And I didn't know about that because I'm not a part of that community, even though I know the vintage community is sort of adjacent and has some overlap with the slow fashion community. It's also different and its its intentions in many ways are different, right? So a well-known reseller who I think seems like an amazing person, uh, who is also a big part of that vintage community, shared my post about all of the harm that all this anti-reseller rhetoric is causing. And a person who I do not know, I am was totally unaware of, do not follow, uh, had never had any contact with, felt that my post had been created in response to posts they had been making. Once again, not true, not part of that community, did not know who this person is. And I had to block this person because they were frightening me, because they really felt that I was targeting them, and I wasn't, and I just... I didn't want to deal with it. I don't, I don't have to deal with it, right? Um, that led them to really, really intensify what they were talking about and how they were talking about me on Instagram that day. And they probably still are. Um, and I'm getting honest, they compared me to a Nazi. They said that I was trying to shut down discourse on this and control people, control the messaging like a Nazi, um, they named several Nazis to compare me to as well, and they proceeded to go on and pick apart all the work I've ever done that they could see because they were blocked. So not a lot, but it was really frightening because I saw how this person was trying to turn me into a villain, that, and that could open me up to harm, you know? And one thing I noticed is that this person, the way they spoke about resellers was pretty messed up, like Really dehumanizing them, accusing them of being greedy and scammy and just evil, bad, selfish people who prioritized money over everything else. This is the kind of language that dehumanizes resellers where you think, it doesn't matter if I do anything bad to this person. In fact, doing something bad to this person is probably a good thing because they are so bad, right? No. Not okay. We cannot let people talk like that about anyone, and especially people who are just selling secondhand clothing. It's like, roll it back, ma'am. <laughs> you know this is going way too far, ma'am. This is a Wendy's, you know <laughs> just, it's just too much. Furthermore, all of these false arguments, they suck up so much time of our time and energy from us, man. I, Could have been working on this episode on what night was that? Wednesday night. That was my plan. And instead, I was like, is this person, what are they going to do to me, right? Like, what's going to happen next? These false arguments, this ever intensifying harmful rhetoric is robbing us of our power and our potential. There are a lot of people out there. I said this in the last episode. I'm saying it again, who are not stoked to hear about a strong community of women, non-binary, trans, and queer people. And that's what both the secondhand community and the slow fashion community are. And it's an amazing group of passionate, talented, and intelligent people. This explosive discourse around the ethics of secondhand reselling can break us into factions, making it easier to ignore and control us. It is... Having such a harmful impact, even if you feel as though it's not impacting you personally. Why, seriously, why are we destroying one another and our relationships over a bunch of myths around thrift stores, secondhand, and the intentions of resellers? By now, four episodes in, you should realize that the true sources of many of these pain points are not resellers. It makes me really, really angry, really, really sad that these false arguments, this misinformation is dividing us and preventing us from working together to make serious change in the world. So that's the what. How about the now what? What can we do to end this escalating harassment and dangerous rhetoric? I'm going to start by saying I'm going to share some ideas here, but I would love to hear from all of you as well, because this this is a difficult puzzle to to put together honestly my first piece of advice is ignore them there are minds unfortunately that will not be changed by us but may be changed with time or more thought attention from us us trying to set them straight if you will is the oxygen that fuels the fire of their rage take that oxygen away from them by ignoring them If it's happening on your Instagram profile, restrict them so no one can see their comments. If y'all knew the number of people I restrict on a regular basis for being shitty or fatphobic or rude in the comments, well, you don't actually know because you don't see them. And that shuts down their nonsense before it starts. I don't want you to waste your time dealing with these people. I don't want to waste my time dealing with these people. Restricting them make sure that we don't hear them and they just have to Be alone yelling at a cloud on their own. Plus, they don't know that they're restricted because it's not as like hardcore as being blocked, but they aren't spreading their harmful behavior, right? Okay, next. Yeah, block people. Seriously, this is one of those things that I used to be so hesitant about, but oh my God, I think back because there are some things that have happened over the years with people on Instagram, like since I started Close Horse, that have- years later still live with me and make me feel frightened, shitty, sad, bad about myself um, on a daily basis. And I wish I would have blocked them back then. I just didn't know. And I actually will tell you, everyone that I have ultimately ended up blocking because they said something really harmful to me um, when I look back, I saw that pattern of behavior developing, that they were kind of like hate following me for a while. And it just escalated to a point where they had to see something really brutal to me. And so uh, that's another case in which I wish I had restricted them or something long before then so I wouldn't have to deal with the hurt that they brought my way. Here's the thing about blocking people. it feels It feels intense. It feels like you're stifling conversation. But You wouldn't let these people come into your house and accuse you of genocide and price gouging or being a terrible person, right? You wouldn't let them do that. Well, they also don't get to do that on your Instagram profile or the comment section your TikTok video because that's your space too. I know as a seller, you worry about blocking people and how that will impact your business, but do it. Those people are not your customers. They're just looking for an outlet for their frustration. And any of you have jumped in to try to defend people or set people straight who are facing that kind of harassment too. you, are not going to change that person's mind. They have to figure it out on their own. Next, report people for bullying and harassment, whether it's happening on your profile or someone else's. That will lead to them having a restricted account and honestly, That means that less people will see their bullshit in the first place. And that's a good thing, too. It's not like we're talking about actively censoring people. We're talking about shutting down harassment, bullying, and misinformation. I would say if you have a friend or a family member who is sort of unsure about the ethics of reselling, maybe they've heard a lot of misinformation, they don't know what is right or wrong, share what you have learned with them. Have them listen to these episodes or check out my Instagram posts. Answer their questions and talk to them about clothing waste. In fact, do your best to share information with the people in your life, even if that's on social media. Let's drown out the misinformation with facts, nuance, and reason. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. And The end of this series for now. I know this is a really long episode, so thank you for hanging in there with me. Once again, I wanna hear your ideas, other suggestions, thoughts. Please never hesitate to send them my way. My email address is amanda at closehorse.world. I'll include that in the show notes. You know, I love hearing from all of you. I look at this as the beginning of the conversation, the beginning of the movement to continue to grow and support the secondhand economy. So I know we're gonna be talking about this a lot more. And you know, things are gonna be changing along the way. So please, if you have something to add to the conversation, send it my way. And thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode. Frankie, Tamara, Stacy, and Marie. I really, really appreciate that you took the time to send your thoughts my way. While Close Horse might seem, especially this episode, like it's just me talking, just the Amanda Lee McCarty show, I look at Close Horse, I look at my work, I see it as a platform for an entire community of people that are working to make a better world. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something that is uncomfortable for many of us to talk about, which is money and specifically the financial situation of this podcast. I'm nearly three years into making a close horse, it's an experience that has changed my life in so many ways, but I want to be very honest with you about the work involved and the real financial situation. For the first year I was making a close horse, I had no job. In fact, it was me losing my job that led me to starting Close Horse. At that point then, I was able to work full-time on Close Horse and still have a little bit of a quality of life outside of it. But I had no money, and making a podcast costs way more than you think, especially if you care about accessibility and quality. So I literally went into debt putting all those expenses on my credit card. In year two, the podcast still lost money, and I was paying back the debt from the previous year, but I was able to pick up enough work to fund the project. In year three, which is right now, I work a more than full-time job that allows me to survive financially and cover the costs of close Horse. But basically, I work that job to fund this podcast, and it is very difficult. (laughs) CloseHorse Horse is primarily funded by me via both my hard work and by money, Ironically, as the podcast grows, it requires more work and money from me while bringing in less income. It's very important to me that I stick to my values in all regards when it comes to Close Horse. So I regularly turn down financial offers from sustainable brands who engage in greenwashing and other sketchy behaviors. In the sustainability space, unfortunately, The biggest greenwashers are the ones with the money to support content creators, right? They're the ones who fund the festivals and the panel conversations and the podcasts and the events, all that stuff. Those brands that stick to their values, the ones that I would love to have as sponsors here on Clothes Horse, they struggle to get investment. So they don't have that kind of money to give away. There have been many situations in which I have turned down money that would help fund this podcast solely because I didn't want to take money from companies that I think are greenwashers. For example, I spoke at a panel conversation earlier this year. Um, It was great. Actually, I had an awesome time. I didn't know until, I don't know, two, three days before it happened that the panel conversation was being sponsored and funded by Allbirds, now, Allbirds is actually one of the biggest greenwashers out there right now. I would urge you to go just Google Allbirds greenwashing and enjoy yourself there. Um, and what was frustrating about this situation is that all of the panelists, including myself, were being paid $100 for our time, which I really valued because I was like, wow, that's like two months of podcast hosting, right? Like the the platform where Clothes Horse lives technologically on the internet, that would cover two months of that. That would be great, right? When I found out that that money would be coming from Alberts, I had to turn it down. I still did the panel conversation because it's important to reach out to other people and because I committed to it, but I turned down the money. That's just where it is with running Close Horse. But I also know that all of you expect and want me to stick to my values as well. Sticking to my values also means I am unwilling to create merch. So please stop asking me whether it's upcycled or brand new stuff. That is not something I'm currently interested in doing because one, I don't have the time. And two, do you really need a Clothes Horse t-shirt? You know, if we ever do live shows, I'll be willing to figure something out there. But like the product that you get from Clothes Horse is what you're listening to right now, as well as all of the other content on social media, all the other resources that I've put out there, that's the product. Unfortunately, making merch is actually how a lot of content creators are able to get paid. So I understand I have also turned down many escalating emails from places like TeePublic and other platforms that make merch for podcasts. You know, when people ask where the money goes on Close Horse, and once again, it's surprising where it goes and how much of it it is, uh, podcast hosting. There's the podcast hosting platform and website hosting. Um, there are recording app fees. I actually use a service called Riverside that allows me to work with guests who don't have computers. Um, and that really amplifies voices who might not have been open to being on the podcast in the past. Um, I spent a lot of money on accessibility services, including a plugin that converts episodes to caption YouTube videos. Uh, there are transcription fees. I also have subscriptions to newspapers and magazines for research. And there are a lot of other apps and software that I use for graphic design and audio production. And all of this stuff is exclusively for Close Horse, not for any other aspect of my life. There is a lot of work that goes into Close Horse as well. On average, I put 40 hours of work into Close Horse each week. I'm gonna say that this week's probably more like a 60-hour week. This is in addition to my full-time job and the other side gigs I take on to help cover the cost of Close Horse. Yes, I don't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> you know, the average episode, if you're wondering, includes two to three hours of recording and outreach four to six hours of research and writing this one because I've written the entire script for this last two hours. We're probably looking at more like 10 to 12 hours of writing. There's four hours of editing, one hour of audio production. Fortunately, Dustin does this for free. Otherwise, it would be very expensive. Um, And then there's three hours of transcript editing and other administrative tasks like, you know, building the episode page online, all that kind of stuff. Each Instagram post is a two to three hour <laughs> project as well. Um, I also moderate Instagram comments, respond to DMs and emails. You know, I'm, I'm talking about this very publicly, even though it is super embarrassing, because I think it's important, to be honest. I put a wild amount of work into this podcast. I do not want you to tell me to take a break. But I will be honest with you that this year, it's going to cost at least $10,000 to create Plows Horse. And... That may increase because as listeners increase, my platform hosting fees go up as well. It's a double-edged sword. It's like you want more people to come and listen, but then you have to pay more for them to be able to hear it. Fortunately, there are a lot of ways you can support Close Horse. You know, one is with cold, hard cash, right? Fund my work. Sign up for Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash You can send a one-time contribution via the support my work link in the link tree of my Instagram profile. You can take out an ad on the show. You can learn more about that at closehorsepodcast.com slash advertising. Without spending a dime, there are other ways you can help. And one big way is by recommending Close Horse to other people. Turning Clothes Horse into a self-sustaining project means getting more people listening and following along. That can lead to more ad revenue, paid speaking gigs, live shows, and other paid opportunities that will hopefully, you know, cover some of the costs of making Clothes Horse. You can tell your friends about the podcast and this account. You can share my work in your Instagram stories. You can ensure that you do not repost my work on your profile, because that's sort of a dead end. It doesn't bring people to me. And to get CloseHorse Horse to be financially sustainable, I need to get as many people knowing about CloseHorse. Horse. So send them my way. And you know what else you can do to help me? Reach out to me when you see accounts sharing my work without permission. Because they're basically stealing from me when they do that. And it doesn't help Clothes Horse grow. You know, there are a lot of people who are like, maybe you should stop making a podcast because podcasts don't make any money. And I'm here to tell you that a few of my favorite podcasts, like You're Wrong About, are solely funded by Patreon members. No advertising whatsoever. They're not on a podcast network. The support of their listeners has enabled them to make a full-time job out of creating a podcast that their listeners love. And on top of that, they've been able to hire other people to help them which gives other people a good job working on something awesome. So I know that Clothes Horse can get there without selling merch or taking money from greenwashers. There are other ways you can help too. You can listen to my other podcast, The Department, which I talk about all the time here, uh, that is another way that, like, sometimes I think it could be easier to turn the department into a paid job because it's more fun. I don't know. Um, you can also recommend me for paid speaking gigs at your company or your organization. I love talking to people about all the stuff we talk about here. Um, I am, have quite a gift for public speaking, if I do say so myself. So please also, if you see those opportunities come up, throw my name in the hat because that will also help me bring in some money to keep Close Horse going. You know, it's really embarrassing to talk about this stuff, um, even though it shouldn't be. And I think, you know, there's much as there are many myths and misinformation out there about how resale works, there is a lot of confusion about what it takes to make a podcast. So I guess I'm glad to tell you all about it and to make myself vulnerable, um, to tell you that this is really hard, that... It's really important to me, but it's not all fun and games and it's not just a hobby for me. It really is a mission. It's a way of life. And it's something that I don't want to stop doing just because money sucks, (laughs) right? So thank you for listening all the way through to the end of that. And thank you for listening to this entire series about resale. Like I said, comments, questions, Suggestions for more ways we can dissect and cover this. Send them my way. I don't want this to be the end of our conversation. And thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. Like I always say, if you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell your friends. Close Horse is a podcast built upon telling your friends, so please do that. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music, our audio support, and infinite patience for all the weird audio stuff I do. See you all next week. Bye! (laughs)